Welcome to the Run for PRs podcast. This is your host, Victoria Phillippe. The Run for PRs podcast was created to give away the secrets to transform your training to reach your goals. We ask all the expert run coaches and athletes the questions that you've been dying to know the answers to. We will get the inside scoop on what really makes you the best athlete that you can be. Have you ever seen a fast runner and wonder, wow, how did they get so fast? Well, then this podcast is for you. We are going to do a deep dive to reveal the secrets to reaching your potential as a runner. So today on the podcast, we have myself, Coach Mary, and Coach Skelly talking about all things marathon pacing. So Skelly and I have collectively ran 25 marathons and two ultra marathons and have coached hundreds of athletes to the marathon distance as well. So we want to do a deep dive into negative starting a marathon, nutrition, coming up with a pacing plan, and what to do if your pacing plan goes awry during the race. So I'm going to kick it off with the first question to you, Skelly. How do you know what sort of pace you can run for a marathon or a half marathon? Well, there's, there's kind of a lot of different ways you can answer that question or find out the answer to that question. Most of the time, I would say, if someone's done or ready to do a marathon or a half marathon, they've probably done some other distances like a 5K or a 10K, even though that's not always true. But a lot of times they have. So you can use that information to kind of give you at least a little bit of a, a guesstimate of what pace they might run for a marathon or for a half and then just start their training based on that. Um, obviously, we have people come to us that are just starting to run or have never done any kind of race and they want to do a marathon. In that case, I would probably just have that person start to do some runs by effort, kind of see what their pace is and kind of build a plan of what they should do marathon pace-wise based on that. Um, so there's a lot of different ways to do it, but a lot of it's where the person is at right now running-wise, what they've done maybe in the last month or two. So asking a lot of questions, you know, what's the longest run you've done in the last month? How fast do you usually do that? What races have you done? Kind of digging deep that way, and then that's how you figure it out. Yeah, and I would also say when you're looking at somebody's training and you're trying to figure out their pacing plan, I like to look at a lot of the steady state and threshold runs. So I think of myself, for example, when I was training for my last marathon, I did a lot of steady state runs around like seven minute pace. So just judging off of that, I could pretty much guess that I would run around a 315 marathon. Um, so there are those really key workouts that you can look at to kind of indicate what pace they should aim for, for a marathon or a half marathon. Yeah, but for sure, especially once you get into the program, and I was thinking I was answering a little bit more like, what if someone comes to me brand new and they're like, what can I run this marathon in? Um, it's kind of looking at that information, but you're totally right. Once they get into those more tempo runs or workouts, you can really start to extrapolate what kind of marathon pace they could run. Yeah, exactly. So uh, similarly, what are the key factors you look at in an athlete's training when coming up with a pacing plan? So it's kind of a similar question. Yeah, so very similar. And you kind of just answered it really well. But I also, I'll say this first and foremost, for me, it's, it's when you're looking at training, you want to make sure obviously the person's staying healthy and running consistently. Um, and that's when you can answer these questions a little bit better. But you look at the workouts, you look at the long runs, um, obviously, hopefully maybe during the training, you might even throw a race in just to kind of see where the person's at and then build the, the pacing around that. Um, most people come in with a goal and hopefully if it's a realistic goal, you're already basing the training on that. Um, and then so you kind of say, OK, here's here's this person's goal. This is what the workouts have been giving them. How have they been going? 
And then you just need to continue to communicate with that person throughout the process. Cause sometimes you might find that, Hey, you know what, it's going so well, or this is happening. I think maybe we can even shoot a little faster or, Hey, you know, these workouts seem to be a little bit harder than I thought they would. Maybe we need to back that goal off. So it's kind of a, it needs to be, cause usually you're training for three to four months. So it kind of needs to be a little bit of a journey as far as that goes. I think you come in with a goal, with a plan, knowing that that could change slightly either way. Does that make sense? Oh, absolutely. And the other thing that I have noticed just as a newer coach, something that I have been surprised by is how important an athlete's mental toughness is in creating a pacing plan for them. Because I have some athletes that are very similar um, in physicality and their capabilities. Um, But one person you know, crushes their workouts, they get out the door every single day, they're doing what they need to do. And the other person, while they are of similar ability, I just struggle and I have to work so hard getting them out the door. So one of them is very mentally tough. The other one's not one person I can probably, you know, give them a plan and they're going to go for it. And the other Mm -hmm. person, they're going to, you know, crash halfway through just because they're not as mentally tough. So those kind of, um, other factors other than just their physicality yeah, come and into play too. And I think bouncing off of that, what you made me think of is even on race day, when it comes down to mental toughness, there's some people that can come out and they can just execute a race just like it's another workout, which is what I try to stress to people. That's really all it is. It's another workout on your schedule. Yes, you've been planning for it and it's kind of a bigger deal because you've been planning for it, but it's still just like any other Sunday or Saturday on the schedule. Try to execute it just like you did all those other workouts, which you crushed. And some people can go out and do that. And some people, it comes to race day and it's like, oh my gosh, I can't do this. Or I'm, you're freaking yourself out before you even start. When you've done all the training, you've done all the preparation, all of a sudden you're just, and I, I've, I've been known to do this myself. <laughs> and you just mm-hmm. kind of get nervous and throw everything out the window and you don't race the way you should. And things kind of unravel from there. And it's real easy once that starts happening to let it kind of steamroll. So I think you're right. There's, just, But the more you prepare, I mean, the more you should be ready for that. And, you, and a person who maybe thinks they're not mentally tough can become mentally tough if they do the, do the work, do the practice, practice it during workouts, during long runs, and then just execute it on race day. So whenever I talk to someone, I really try to stress that, that it's just another workout. Here's how we're going to do it. Just just a lot of people around doing the same workout. Right, exactly. <laughs> and I think also that's where the coach athlete relationship really comes into play. Because I think the more that you work with an athlete, the more that you can kind of see their triggers and see what, you know, sets them off. um, What kind of makes them go down a negative trajectory with training or with races. And you can kind of talk them through it and figure it out from there. Um, It's just so important to kind of have that longevity with a coach if it is working from the get go. Yeah. But I agree with that too. And And it's, I've done this a long time. So I would never, as a runner and as a coach, so I would never put someone in a situation to run something I didn't think they could do. Um, I wouldn't right. say, oh yeah, I think you can do that. And I don't really think they can. I mean, that wouldn't, that's not going to help anyone. So if anyone out there that I coach, if I have a plan for you, it's, I totally think you're capable of it based on what you've done in workouts and races and, and other things. So I have confidence in that too. Yeah, that's such great insight. So one question that we get a lot of, Uh, questions on is what is a negative split and why is it so important when we talk about it in regards to the marathon? All right. I'm I'm excited to have this conversation with you because you and I are kind of different in this, in in this realm as far as runners. So I'll answer it as a coach first. 
So I, a lot of times I have people actually do what I call a negative split run, like for a workout. And this is a great way to explain it. And it's super easy way to explain it. So I might have you go out and, okay, Mary, I want you to go out and run for 15 minutes, nice and easy pace. Just run out, you know, don't do a loop or anything. Just go straight out for 15 minutes. Turn around, follow that same exact route back. And I want you to come back faster than 15 minutes, like 14 and a half minutes or 14 minutes. That's a negative split. You do the second half faster than the first half. And there's a lot of people that, you know, like we're used to the lingo negative split, but they don't understand what that is. So an easy way to explain it in a marathon is running your second half of the marathon faster than your first half. I've done 21 marathons. I've only done that once. (laughs) And it was my very first marathon. And I I ran with some friends that went out way easier than I probably was capable of doing at the time and had like a monster negative split of like 10 minutes, which is like crazy. But I went out, you know, pretty slow. Then the next race from then on, I've never negative split. I've come very close, even splits, but I've never quite been able to, I've gotten more patient, but to get patient enough to, to do that. Now I've heard that you always do that. So let's hear about it. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I pretty much always negative. I mean, not a 5k. I'm never negative splitting a 5k, but I do tend to negative split marathons. Um, I think Boston being the only one that I didn't. Um, and I think, going back to my first marathon, I had no goal in mind other than I wanted to run sub four just because I thought that was pretty realistic. And I was just kind of using that as a framework, although I really just wanted to finish. So I started out extremely slow, like 930 pace, I think. And I got to, I don't know, 18, 19 miles and I felt amazing. Like I never hit the wall um, because I was running so slow. And then after that, I just, um, I don't know. It's just easy for me. I kind of run a little bit scared at the beginning of a race and I'm so afraid of bonking and hitting the wall that I just, I really stick to a plan basically out of fear. (laughs) So, um, I just think it's funny when people go balls to the walls right away. Cause I'm like, aren't you afraid? Right? (laughs) Aren't you so scared of hitting the wall? And I just, I mean, I don't know. It's easy for me to kind of not get caught up in the, the buzz of the beginning of a race. I mean, I just, I just try to stick to that plan literally out of fear. So, and that's awesome. And a lot of people, what happens is you just said it, they get excited or you feel great. I mean, I always love this when I, whenever I've done a marathon and I'm sure you've had this happen before, you're about a mile or two in and a fan will, or, you know, a spectator will yell out to you and go, you look great. And I'm like, well, two miles in, I better look good or I'm in big trouble. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) You know, we we laugh about it, but it's true. But so many times you can go out just, you know, five or 10 seconds faster thinking, oh, this feels good because you've tapered and done all that. But it can come back to haunt you. And and I've I've even split a lot of times in shorter races. I certainly have negative split, like 5Ks and 10Ks. But in longer runs, I've just always had a little bit of trouble at the end um, kind of of doing that. But it's not so much because I went out balls to the wall. It's just... A little bit more of my body and for a lot of times when I was doing the marathon I was battling it didn't know I had celiac disease so right. overshare but it would have you know bathroom issues and things I didn't realize why they were happening that would sometimes cause me to not have the negative split but I had a group of friends when I was would do a lot of marathons would always tell me You're, you'll never really get that time until you can either even split or negative split and it's hard right. to learn but it's it's if you can do it really really good things are going to happen Right. I mean, well, the fact is no world record has ever been ran without a negative split from the 5k to the marathon. Wow. 
That is Look an at actual you being fact. newsworthy. That's very nice. I know. I know. <laughs> I'll be here all day. Yeah. <laughs> I did not know that either. That's really, that's yep. awesome. So but. there's not a single uh, world record that, well, I should say that the, the men's half marathon record was just broken and I'm not sure about that one. Right. But they at least come so, really close. They might have a positive probably, of like 30 seconds or something. Yeah. It's probably pretty close if it's not a negative split. So yeah, and, and I, the other thing, too, is there's no such thing as banking time in a marathon. I mean, you just can't do it. Our bodies, you know, I know it seems counterintuitive that, well, at mile 20, I'm going to have all that fatigue on my legs. How am I supposed to run faster? But it's been proven time and time again that you just can't bank time yep. in a marathon. And I agree with that. And well, one thing, person I think of, and um, she's been on Instagram a few times, so if anybody follows us, like maybe have seen this story, but she came to us and she had ran like 34 marathons and she really wanted to break 330. And this person, if she's listening, knows who I'm talking about already, but she's always been right around like 332, 333, like right in there. Um, so we talked about the negative splitting and going out more under control because she's kind of struggled to do that. And so in order to break 330, you have to run you know, basically just under an eight flat, like a 758, 759 pace. She did the first 16 miles at 815 pace. So that's like a 335 marathon and then gradually started to pick it up through in a couple of faster miles when she had some downhills and ended up running a 329 and an overall 758 pace, even though for 15 miles, she did much slower. Um, right. But she had, she had to trust that, that she could do that. And when people can do that, such good things happen. But so often, you, if I had a dollar for every time, we wouldn't be talking because I'd be retired. If I had a dollar every time... <laughs> Someone came to me and said, oh, Skelly, I didn't listen to you, and I went out too fast. I know. I would be rich because it – and I do it myself, too. It's like you can't – so what I tell people is, you know what? Go out at a pace you feel is right and then slow down because you're probably still going too fast. Yeah. So and anyway, I think, I'm starting to ramble. But you nailed it. The big thing is trust, having trust in what your coach has set out for you, having trust in – your pacing plan. That's the biggest thing. So yep. um, if an athlete was going to write their own pacing plan, how would you advise them to come up with that? Ooh, that's a good question. Um, maybe I'll just kind of take you through what I would do with someone. Let's say they're going to run a half marathon and they've been doing the workouts. They've been doing tempos. They've been doing different things. What I would tell them to do is to structure it this way. I wouldn't even think pace first. I would think effort. Um, and this is just me. And I'd be interested to hear what you have to say about it. The first 10 miles should be a pace that's easier than tempo. It should feel, because tempo pace should be a pace you can hold for an hour. And obviously a half, unless you break a record, world record, you're going to be going longer than an hour. So you want to be going a little bit slower than that. It should be something that's comfortable and you know you can do it for 10 miles, nice and relaxed, even though it's, you know, maybe a teensy, bintsy bit pushing it, but not really, just kind of relax for 10 miles. Then with 3.1 to go, you can start thinking about, okay, I've stayed relaxed. I've done a great job this first 10. Now I'm going to start to gradually pick that up. Now, if you want to put that effort with a pace, it kind of depends on what a person's been doing. I would look at your tempo pace and think it's got to be at least probably 15 seconds or so slower than that. Um, but it really depends on the person um, and their pace. So I, I think it's, you just need to be real careful and you, you need to look at other races you've done. What I would do is I would get the help of a coach. <laughs> yeah I, yeah I think it would be hard to, to do that on your own if you haven't yeah I think I mean having that unbiased approach somebody looking at your training with an unbiased look is so helpful 
Um, Cause it's hard for ourselves to be realistic. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's just so hard to look at your time and say, Oh, well, I'll feel better on race day. Like I can probably run this time or, Oh, that day that I did that workout, I didn't even feel good. I can probably run seven minute pace for a marathon, you know, cause yep. race day will allow me to do this. So there's just so many things that it's just helpful to have that unbiased look. Um, the other thing I would say, I like to get really into it and look at the elevation of the course and yep. just kind of pick up on where I'm probably going to be slowing down because you want to kind of know, and not freak out like, oh, that's a slight hill and my pace is slowing. And you you want to think more so about even effort rather than yep. you know, even pace. Um, and then as the race gets closer, you're obviously going to want to be looking at weather and kind of what you're up against in terms of the elements. So um, all of those things that go into it, what your what your pacing is going to kind yep. of end up to be. And we'll probably get more into that in a little bit, but I think weather is such a factor and you're right with course. And that's why I I so much more talk effort because if you can keep that consistent effort, whether you're going up or down, it's all going to even out. Um, You know, not, you don't want to be surging up hills just to keep that pace that you've been running. You know that you're going to slow down a little bit and it's okay um, because you don't want your heart rate to spike. There's just a lot of things you need to consider as far as when you're coming up with a plan. But that's, I usually, when I have someone getting ready to run a marathon, I have them send me a link and I make sure I look at the elevation. Although I will tell people to be careful of those because sometimes the scale's not exactly right. <laughs> and you look and you might yeah. think it's going to be monster hilly and it's not, or vice versa. This looks pretty flat and it's not. Yeah. So just be careful of that. They are not as realistic as you would think. And I can say from my 50 this past weekend um the last 10 miles were supposed to be incredibly hilly and they weren't so it was yeah well I bet you were glad that that was the case yeah oh yeah for sure but yeah you can kind of freak yourself out too so take it with a grain of salt but it is a good thing to look at um so do you have any athletes that struggle with the concept of negative splitting and how do you as a coach get them to slow down in the beginning and kind of trust that process right and that, that's a negative a, split it's a good question and it's really quite honestly a never-ending battle I mean when I coach college coaching now it's just hard especially online I'm not there you know to see them if I'm in person training someone I can help them you know let's say it's a track you know workout or it's a track event obviously I'm seeing them every 400 meters I can teach them you know, to slow down or tell them to slow down or whatever. But when you're out there just running on the roads, that's a little harder to do. So it takes a lot of practice and a lot of patience. Um, and you just have to keep, keep doing it. And usually what it, what it takes is you have to experience doing it once, knowing that, okay, I can go out a little slower and um, have that confidence passing people at the end, all that stuff that kind of comes with it, and then things will click. Um, but it's just constantly educating someone. The, trust me, it's the way to do it. Yeah. And I was actually thinking the exact opposite, that sometimes it takes a bad race of positive <laughs> splitting yep. and bonking to really understand the importance yep. of negative splitting and how I can. Yeah, I have a great example of that. And I'm glad you said it because you made me think of it. So I'm going to use myself as an example. So my very first marathon, I went out and I, like I said, I ran with friends and I went nice and casual, ran like 405, went great. The next time I ran and I it paced a little bit more and I ran like a 315. And our 317 or whatever. So I'm like thinking at the time it was like, took like a 310 to qualify for Boston. So I'm like, this is easy. I just took like all this time off. I'm going to do this every time, which we both know is not true. Once, especially once you get to that place, you kind of need to do it in little steps. 
like I know you recently ran a 315, probably the next step is like a 312, 310, not jump to a three hour. So, exactly. so I wanted to qualify for Boston. I wanted to run like under 310. So I needed like a 715 pace and um, went out a little for 21 miles. It'll sound impressive if I would have told this story backwards. I ran 21 miles at a 650 pace, which, oh. which sounds great, except I was yep. supposed to be running a 715 pace. And so I did it for 21 miles, which I'm actually in a weird way proud of. But that's incredible. I'll, I'll yeah. tell you what, I got to mile 21, flip a light switch. It went from doing 650 pace to, uh, I hope I can hold on to an eight minute. Oh, wait, maybe I can hang on to a nine minute. Wait a minute. Maybe I can do a 10 minute pace. Take, and we're walking. Yeah. Take one guess at how, how long it took me to do my last 5k. Oh, 30 minutes, 50 minutes, five, zero. Cause I walked, not I great. stopped. Yeah, it was not good. So I, and you would, and I, and I learned a valuable lesson that day to, that, that's a lot off of your pace, but I still see it happen all the time where people, and I'll talk to them, I'll say, remember, just nothing faster than eight minute mile. And then I'll see their first 5K will come through when I'm tracking them. It'll be like 745 pace. And right away, I'll be, uh-oh. You yeah. Because you just can't and do that. Those seconds add up. It might not seem like a big deal. I mean, even five seconds off pace can be a big deal. And that's a little bit more important the faster that you get. Mm-hmm. But it's, yeah. It's, it can be a big deal if you start running faster. I mean, I actually did do that during my last marathon. I started picking it up into the 710-ish pace range, kind of about halfway. And I just immediately dialed it back because I knew that that probably wouldn't end well. Like, you, you never know. Maybe it could go fine. But I just knew that I should probably just chill out. Right. And you just kind of have to be trustworthy enough and um, just trust in your pacing plan. And if you've done a long marathon buildup, which everybody has, you should, you kind of know, because marathons and really has come down to be it staying healthy, good weather, good course. And then you just feel good that day. And sometimes you just don't. I mean, there's been times where I know I was ready to run like a three Oh five and I'm five, six miles in. And I'm like, you know, I just don't feel right. Like this doesn't feel as easy as it should. And I just learned that, you know what, it's just not going to be the day. That's okay. Slow it down a little bit and still have a good race with this. Maybe it's not going to be PR or whatever. It sucks when you've been training for three or four months and you have to do that. Um, But it is important to kind of listen to your body and kind of know those things too, which you learn over time. Right. And that leads me to, if you do have an athlete that if they get to mile, you know, three to six and realize that they're going out too fast, what should they do in that situation? Yeah. And, and I think I would guess you're going to say the same thing and it's going to sound simple is slow down, <laughs> you know, and get in, right. get into the right rhythm. And, and one thing we talk about when we, you know, I like to talk to people before a race, whether it's email or verbally or whatever is to here's, here's what's going to happen if everything's going right. But we do need to talk about if things just aren't quite going the way you you wanted them to, you, you just need to get into that. Sometimes you just need to get into that pace where, you know what, this is comfortable. I know I can hold this for a long time and just get into that pace, even though it's maybe not the race pace you were hoping for. Maybe the weather's really crappy or whatever it is, or you just, you had some GI issues, who knows? Um, things can happen. You just have to get into that pace because you obviously want to finish and just get into a pace that's going to be realistic that you can do, can, can keep going. What would you say to that? Right. Well, I would say, um, you know, you're in the first 
you know, six miles and you're going out a little too fast, I would say don't freak out just yet. I mean, all is not lost. You know, you still have a lot left. You can still get back on track and maybe it'll affect you later down the line. Maybe it won't if you weren't going super crazy. Um, but I think I've seen a lot of athletes that start out super, super fast and it, they kind of get in their own heads and kind of freak out and just think, Oh my gosh, my race is done. Yep. This is over. Like I started too fast and now I'm going to blow up. But I think that can just turn into a self-fulfilling prophecy. If you keep I, uh, thinking that it's going to go down the, the spiral. And I think that's well said. And I think even if you slow down a little bit, like you said, it could be you slow down for two or three miles and all of a sudden, you know what, I'm feeling better. You gradually get into a little bit faster groove, whatever it might be. And you still have a great day at this. It, it's not all over, like you said, but right. um, sometimes exactly. you just have to prepare for that. I, I try to always focus on the positive, but I usually at least throw a little bit in there. there. There's a chance that things have to change a little bit during the race. And, and sometimes you just got to do that. Yep. And you just roll with it. Yep. So let's talk about the wall in Ooh. a marathon. What is it and why does it happen? Yeah. So the, everyone's heard this bon- the term bonking or hitting the wall or whatever it is. Typically what it is, and we'll probably get into a conversation about fueling, I'm guessing after this, is your body needs enough carbohydrates, obviously, and other energy stores to do this race, but mostly carbohydrates. If you get to a point where your body starts depleting, which is called glycogen stores, but your carbohydrates, once that is depleted, that is hitting the wall. So you want to really make sure, and that can happen for a variety of reasons. You're running out of carbohydrates, you're running too fast, whatever it is. But for the most part, once that starts to happen, um, that is typically what people would refer to as the wall. And why it tends to happen at mile 20, I'm not sure if that's totally accurate, but a lot of people think that's where it hits, but that's probably a myth. Um, it's, but it tends to be just running out of fuel. Right, exactly. And the unfortunate thing is that when you are running low on glycogen, it does affect your brain, and that's when you get those really negative feelings and those feelings of fatigue. Yeah. So. Yeah, your body might be slowing down, but it's really your brain that's kind of sending those negative signals and telling you to stop. Um, that's probably the worst part about it is just how negative you get when you are hitting the wall. Yeah, and, it's, and it can kind of come on all of a sudden. So that's why it's so important to really practice feeling during training and really have a plan. I have so many people, and it still amazes me, we'll talk you know, right before the race is getting there, and I'll be like, you know, what's your feeling plan? Well, I usually don't eat anything. I'm like for 26 miles. I mean, you can't, you can't do that. Um, you, and I, and I was, I'll be honest. I was kind of bad at that because gels didn't always sit well with me. So sometimes I would be doing it. I would know I need more, but at my stomach, I just wouldn't feel like doing it. And I would always run into trouble at the end. And it wasn't until I did my ultra and we can talk a little bit about the one you just did that. I really learned a great lesson that was to eat a lot more. And I ate a lot of regular foods, um, I ate, I'd be curious to hear what are the, some of the things you did, but I had um, pancakes, blueberry pie, um, potatoes. At one point I took a real gamble and ate a bean burrito, which people, yeah, people hear that and all that food and think, oh my gosh, how could you do that? But I'll tell you what, it was a super muddy day. I was out there longer than I've ever been out in a race in my life. It was six hours in the mud. I never hit the wall or bonked, but cause, and to me it was cause I was eating all that food. Um, you can't really yeah. do that in a marathon, maybe per se, but the message there is to make sure you're getting something in your in your body every three to four miles. Go ahead. Yeah, I found it to be quite a bit easier to fuel during an ultra marathon just because you can walk and that's yeah. totally fine. Yeah. <laughs> but, and I probably had 
I mean, the, the peanut butter and jelly sandwiches were cut up into squares, but I probably had 30 squares. I mean, I wow. was just crushing food the entire time. And you have to, especially to go <laughs> And you just far. have to. I mean, yeah, I mean, it was 12 hours. Yeah, it was 10 and a half hours. Oof, so that's you, awesome. you, you got to eat a lot. And while I didn't have a massive breakfast, I just had oatmeal. Um, you got to eat throughout the day and quite a lot of it. So yeah, there was I was doing potatoes, pretzels, peanut butter and jelly sandwiches, um, hammer, electrolyte solution, water, obviously. Right. I would have some caffeine gels along the way. But I think when you look at the marathon fueling strategy, it is quite a bit different. So how would you say a runner should plan their fueling on race day to avoid hitting that wall? So number one is practice what works for them because, you know, everybody's a little bit different whether you know, you're eating something every three or four miles or whatever it is. And kind of to, to go off of what you just said, you're, you're right, it's different. And a lot of times with marathons, people don't want to sacrifice that time you know, to eat or do whatever. But I'll tell you what, if you sacrifice you know, five or 10 seconds to make sure you get food in, it's going to pay off later than to not do it and to start slowing down because you start to run out of glycogen stores. So finding that rhythm for, for me personally, I'll tell you what I do. Um, after years of doing them is I eat something every three to four miles and then I have uh, sips of water every 20 minutes and that for the last you know five or six marathons I've done that's worked really really well for me might be different for you might be different for somebody who's listening you need to practice what you're going to eat leading up that week of the race so anytime you have a long run it's a good time to do that when you have a long run of like 15 miles 20 miles practice exactly how you're going to do it and how you're going to take it during the race whether that's putting it out or having someone hand it to you or carrying it or whatever you got to do. Right. I mean, by marathon time, you should have an exact idea of what you're going to do in terms of what gels you're going to take, what fuel, um, when you're going to take it, how much you should really have a good idea of that and what works for you. I mean, for me, if I'm negative splitting, I'm, I'm obviously running faster towards the end and I always find myself taking in a lot more, at the end. So I'm, I actually end up taking probably three gels in the last 10 K I would say. Um, just because I feel like I'm working so hard and I can just tell that my body needs it. Um, now for somebody that's positive splitting, maybe they're not cause they're walking at the end and they don't even <laughs> correct, but they might <laughs> still like, need it. <laughs> they might still need it, but they're probably just, I'm done. But yeah, so I think everybody's so different and you just have to do what works for you. Right. And you really need to stick to it. I mean, a lot of people, and, and I've been a little guilty of this myself a few times, is you get into the race and then you kind of like forget everything you were going to do. Like I was going to eat and then, oh, you know, something happened and I stopped to go to the bathroom or whatever and I skipped it or just and didn't you feel, feel like, like it's eating. fine. Yeah. And you feel like it's fine, yeah. but it, it, it can come back it's to not. haunt you. And I think I have exactly. to go ahead. No, I was just going to say, yeah, it's, you can't skip. Yeah. You got to, you got to take it in. And I think I have to do a better job as a coach educating people. Cause it seems like I continue to have the same conversation where people, even though I've told them to plan on long runs, we'll still get to close to marathon day and they'll be like, well, so what should I eat on marathon day? It's like, well, we should have been, you know, practicing this. So anyone out there listening, make sure you're practicing it anytime you do a long run. Right. I would say that's something that I need to work on as a coach too, is making sure that my athletes are practicing that on their long runs. And I think, most of my athletes will ask me right away, kind of when we start working together, okay, what should I, what should I take? What have you tried? Um, and so we'll kind of have a conversation right away. But sometimes I do have people asking me a couple of days before and I'm like, oh my gosh, we didn't talk about this. Yep. <laughs> so I don't know. You just kind of assume. But 
that kind of brings me to my next question. So when you are coming up with a pacing plan for somebody, do you write in when to take their fuel into their pacing plan? You know, if we're talking like the actual, it's a marathon time. I either have an email or I, you know, talk to some people on the phone. Um, and that's one of the main first things I talk about. Number one is, okay, so if we're getting close and we're talking like it's about to happen in like, say, a week, we look at the weather, we look at the course, we talk about fueling, we talk about what you're going to wear, all those things. So to answer that question, yes. Um, do I do it like really early on? Um, not necessarily, not until we get to the actual planning part. Like this is, here comes race day. Here's what we're going to do. Exactly. Um, and here's what I do. But they should have, and most of the time I have told them this, is to make sure that they're practicing this ahead of time. And then it should be just business as usual, just like a workout. Maybe you've been taking a little bit more. And I always tell people to take as much as you can handle. Like whatever your stomach will let you do, you know, take that in because it'll only help you. Right. And, you know, the general rule is to take in 60 grams of carbs every hour starting at 45 minutes into the race and then 30 minutes or so after that. Yep. So it's kind of the general rule. And then you can kind of just tweak it as you need to. Um, so I know we talked about people that don't fuel during a marathon. Do you think you have to? Yes. And why? 100%. Yeah. There's no answer other than yes. Um, <laughs> especially, well, now if we're talking, start talking to 5k or 10k, the, the conversation's a little different and oh, yeah. maybe you can get away with a little, you know, in a half marathon, you still need to fuel 100%. And for a marathon, there's just no way, no getting around it. I can't imagine even an elite runner who does 26.2 and they're not out there as long and they're not fueling or eating something. And, and the easiest analogy is, do you drive your car without gas? No. Um, so you need to have fuel. That's the 100% a yes. Yep. And the why behind that is because those glycogen stores where our carbs are stored in our body, they are emptying after 90 minutes. So if you're running for longer than 90 minutes, which many of, of us are for a half and a full marathon, um, you need to carb up and get some more fuel in your body to keep going. Yep. And quick carbs. And that's why, you know, people will, will wonder why, you know, gels and different things like that. Um, that's because they get into your system quickly. Exactly. Yep. You don't want to be eating whole wheat bread. <laughs> yeah, no. I've been waiting for <laughs> At <you>. mile 20. <laughs> That'll help you after the you. race. But yeah, exactly. but it is one, without a doubt, you cannot do a marathon without having a fueling plan and, and doing that. And you won't see anybody that does. And if anybody who tells you they do, I'm going to just say it, they're wrong. Yeah. Or I'm just <laughs> going to say you probably have horrendous stomach issues and you're not going to get a PR because mm -hmm. that's just not going to happen. <laughs> yeah. Really difficult. Yeah. So kind of switching gears here, um, talking about time goals. So what advice do you have to somebody who's going after an aggressive time goal? So give me an example of what you mean by an aggressive time goal. I saw this question and I'm like, so it's something that I don't think they could actually do. Or it's, it's aggressive for them? In what way do you mean? How would you define that? Let's say it's, it's a goal that they could reach, but they're going to have to work super, super hard. It's not somebody coming to you at the four-hour marathon saying they want to run a 230. It's somebody that's coming to you with a four-hour marathon and they want to run a 330. Okay, and that's... Possible. Yeah, it, it's possible, but what I would say most of the time is you're going to have to take some steps to get there. It's not going to happen in one marathon. Um, right. that, obviously, that's a great goal, and it, it really depends on the person and staying healthy and being consistent and doing all those little things. But really, you'd probably want to take steps like 
maybe the next one you're shooting for around 350 and then 345 and then three, it needs to be, and even that, that's a huge improvement. If you went from four hours to 350, that's huge. Um, and you need to take those steps and not uh, half an hour is an awfully big leap um, depending on the situation. So when it's that aggressive and, and that happens a lot, like we'll have people, you know, my best is a 430 and I really want to qualify for Boston. Well, that's a whole hour, you know, depending right. on their age or if it's male or female, but let's say it's, it's a female and they're under 30 or whatever, and they need to take an hour off. You have to have that conversation, not be afraid to have that conversation that it's going to take time. And I, you know, I need to see what the next, you know, what your next step is, how the next one goes to really be able to answer that question. It, it's really hard if someone just comes to you and says, I want to do this. I, I don't know right off the bat if they're capable of it or not. We need to work together for a while. I need to see certain things. I need to know that it's going to be a process. Like for me, it took me six tries to qualify, to right. just take those. That's why I was improving every time. But like you said earlier in the podcast, it's like once you get to a certain pace, it's going to be smaller drops right? as far as that goes. So I, I just being careful and being realistic. And like I said earlier, I don't tell someone they can do something unless I feel like they can. And so vice versa, if it's like, way out of reach, you know, you have to have that difficult conversation. Yeah. I mean, and then you get the opposite person. I had somebody recently that I think they were at a 349 marathon and they wanted to run a 348. And I was <laughs> like, okay, I think we can, I think, I think we, we can, can do, do that. that. So, and that's funny. And I think their marathon was six months away. I'm like, your goal is great, but we can do better. And that is the best case scenario for yep. a coach. Cause you can really deliver on that one. Yep. And um, for but sure. then you, you do get that person that they're trying to cut an hour off and their marathon is in two months. Yeah. That's and just obviously that's, not realistic. And that's just not realistic. And that's just a conversation that we need to have. And it might seem obvious to us, but maybe not so obvious to them. So, you know, you have to get on their level and explain to them, you know, what goes into this whole, you know, running a Boston qualifier and decreasing your marathon time. Right. So, and we're not helping There's a lot anyone. that goes into it. Yeah, and we're not helping anyone if we give them the idea that they can do this when maybe it's not realistic and just know it. You just need to be as honest and open as you can. And anyone should appreciate that and know that maybe you can, but it's going to take some time and we need to do some things to get there. And it could be a long process. And you've seen a lot of stories on that she's supposed to run for pre hours of people, you know, it took them three or four years, but they made huge gains, but it just, it takes time. It didn't happen overnight or in like six to eight weeks, like you just said. Right. And you might make a huge jump one year and then it takes you five years to make those little incremental jumps. Yep. So it's so different for everybody. That's why sometimes it's hard to kind of look at somebody else's journey. Um, but you just have to realize that you have your own and you'll get there when you get there. Yep. And that's, that's the plan for you. So yep. and I, I wanted to say something off of what you just said too. And I'm glad you said it, it is people because Instagram and Facebook and all those things are great and having the community and doing all those things. But where it can be a little bit of a negative is people seeing what other people are doing and what paces they're running and what improvements they're having. And then they compare themselves to that. And everybody is different in their own journey and how you're going to get there is different. Um, so try not to pay too much attention to that. It's hard in this day and age. I mean, I grew up I'm a lot older than you. And I grew up when we didn't have all that stuff. So you, it was easier to not compare yourself to others because you weren't seeing it. But I have a lot of athletes now. It's like, hey, I see such and such is doing this many miles or do, they're doing this. Why am I not doing that? And it's just right. not right for them at the time. And, and just so just be careful of, of that if you're out there, if you're listening to comparing yourself to what you see on 
social media and that kind of thing. Just do the best you can every day. And that's all you can ever do. Right. I mean, we've, we've gotten to a point where every day is race day now, you know, every day people are posting their runs and you're comparing your runs to them. And it's not just every six months at a marathon. It's like every day you get to, you have the opportunity to compare your times to other people and it can kind of go down a negative, unhealthy spiral if you, if you let it. Right. And that's the beauty of run for PRs. It's run for your personal best. Don't run for someone else's. You can always better yourself. And I'm at a place where I could tell you right now, I'm probably, and this is going to sound super negative, but it's just a fact. I'm not going to PR in any distance probably ever again, because, you know, I had a heart procedure 10 years ago. I had, I'm older, (laughs) all these different (laughs) things. And just, I can't run the way I used to. And I'm totally, totally okay with that. And I can do, you know, Hey, I can do better than I did last race or last year or whatever it is. And I'm totally okay with that. And, And we're, it's great to shoot for those things, but you know, there's other reasons to run and there's other reasons to run for. Uh, true words of wisdom from Coach Skelly himself. Boom, boom. I love it. <laughs> so along the same lines, uh, if somebody is running their first marathon, what is some advice that you would give them if they're just trying to finish it? Yeah, and that's usually my advice to anyone doing their first one is don't worry about a time goal. You just want to finish it feel good, run a pace that you can really enjoy it and enjoy the experience. That's what I did in my first one. Um, That's what you want to do. And I would tell anyone that now there's some instances and I have a few people now that, you know, like came and said, Hey, this is my first one. I just want to break four hours, which is a great first time goal. And, but they're out, but they also just ran a half that would show me that they could probably run like a 340. Um, I wouldn't tell them to do that because it's their first one. But I might say maybe four hours is a little bit too slow because it just won't feel right. Maybe we want to talk about a 350. It just kind of depends. But for the most part, I would answer that question and just find a nice a pace that you just can finish and feel comfortable doing it, do the right amount of training, the right miles, and just enjoy it, and then start thinking about time goals. Right. I think time for your first marathon is more of just a framework, just kind of having – like I talked about earlier, my first goal was to break four hours and it was just kind of a, kind of a ballpark, you know, yep. it could, you know, be four, it could be under four whatever, just kind of having that framework is nice just to have an idea of what pace you should start out at and what you should kind of uh, do during the race. So on race day, how do you navigate the uncontrollable factors? Yeah. So obviously people start looking at the weather and everything like a week before, um, and you start letting, oh my gosh, it's going to be windier. It's going to rain or, and those things can happen. Um, ultimately you can't really do anything until race day happens and see what the weather, or the course or whatever is going to give you. Um, there are some times you're just going to have to adjust. Um, there, there's times where it's going to be like so hot and humid that if you went out at the pace you were planning, it's going to really be difficult. So you have to be prepared to slow down. And there's a lot of books that would say if it's over like 60 degrees, you should alter your plan which is right. Yeah. But you know, and, and I'll tell Crazy, you, but yeah. Yeah. And I'll tell you this and it just, it just kind of depends, but you don't, you also don't want to be, it's, you got to be careful because if it's really hot, you want to be obviously smart and be careful, but you never know. And I'll give you a personal story. And I know coach Ben has a similar story. My marathon PR was grandma's marathon. And this is the only time I qualified for Boston. I got up at four 30 in the morning to go take the bus. It was already 70 degrees and 90% humidity at five in the morning. Oh my gosh. So, you know, you're in trouble. It's like, 
people were dropping like flies, but I went out a little bit more conservative, but not too much more conservative. And I ended up having really one of the best races I've ever had. And I don't know to this day how, you know, I'd love to know what would have happened if the weather was better, but I just stayed within myself. Maybe it, it did what we talked about earlier and it slowed me down. And that's why right. I ran, <laughs> ran better. I don't know. I'm not telling people when it's hot, go out and hammer it, but I'm just saying right. you don't have to totally throw it away either. Um, yeah. But take what the day gives you and know that you might have to alter it. Like I had someone run, she was trying to qualify for Boston, needed a 350. I still feel horrible for her because it was super, super windy and raining, like super. And she missed it by like 30 seconds. That's a heck of a race to yeah. do that. And it was those kind of conditions, but she knew she was going to have to slow down. And what can you do if it's 30 mile an hour headwinds? you know, you're just going to have to alter. What, what do you tell people on those days? Um, <laughs> I tell people to change races. Just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes but, you can. <laughs> but I did have an athlete this week who was supposed to do the Air Force Marathon in Dayton, Ohio, but it was going to be 90 degrees. So she decided, nope, I'm going to do the Fox Cities Marathon in Wisconsin because it's going to be better weather. Yep. So as a, as a coach, that was great because yep. we, could, we can still look at our A goal and, and we'll be good. Um, but yeah, once you start looking at weather and it's not going to be great, you do have to kind of refocus and look at those BC D goals that you set up for yourself or your coach set up for you. Um, And the other thing too, that I think is super fun when you've been working with somebody for a while is you can kind of start planning out their races for the next year. Um, Because I personally would not recommend doing a marathon in September, pretty much in any, any place in the United States, because you're not going to be guaranteed good weather. Whereas if you're looking at October and November, you have such a better chance of running a marathon with good weather. So I love being able to plan out and be like, yeah, let's, you know, aim for twin cities. It's pretty much always like 50, 60 degrees. Yep. You might get rain, whatever, but we're not going to be 90 degrees on October 6th. Yep. There was one year I did. There's a, there's a big chance, but (laughs) it wasn't really one year. It was really like that year they closed Chicago down. They like didn't let them finish and it was on the oh same day that year, but that's yeah. a fluke. Usually I ran it a couple Total years ago fluke. and it was beautiful. Um, but Whereas, that's a great thing to tell people. But like September you're, you know, the chances of having a 90 degree day are so much higher. Yeah. So I'm like, let's just stay away from September, September. marathons. That'd yeah. be great because I just, I get so worried. Right. And sometimes that's the only time people can do it or they have busy schedules or whatever and and totally get that. But you are gambling it. And it does, that is a tough thing about marathon. And I'll I'll say this, I've done 21. I've only had ideal weather once. And the one time I did, I was running with my nephew to pace him. And he's running about two minutes per mile slower than I do. Not that I'm bitter, but it was like 45 degrees and a tailwind. I'm like, seriously? But I've just never gotten lucky. It's either been raining or windy or hot or something. I've never had just perfect weather um and you just you adjust and and kind of have to be able to make some alternative plans perhaps or like you said if you can find one that's a week later or right you can do what she did and go to Appland. i ran that one once by the way it's a good race did it yeah okay yeah i liked it I i have a couple athletes doing it yep yeah so there's a lot of different ways you can change things up but at some point you do have to just kind of control your controllables and not worry about the uncontrollable ones exactly so when you are you know running a race and halfway through you feel like crap should you adjust your pacing goals 
Um, I'm going to say that I personally have. I mean, you just you may be in it and it's just not your day and you're not feeling good. It could be, you know what, I really wanted to run this, but now let, let's see if I can do this. And sometimes it's just what the day gives you and you have to do that. And I've certainly have done that. And I would talk to people about doing that, especially if you're that far in, you kind of know. And, and it also gives you something to focus on. I mean, you're disappointed because maybe you're not hitting your A goal, but you can be like, you know what, I can still do this. I'm going to be very proud of myself for kind of regrouping and doing you know, B, C, or D, or whatever it might be. So I, I think sometimes that is something you have to do. I've done it myself. Sometimes I had no choice, <laughs> and you just had to kind of do it. But for the most part, I think it's it's totally okay to do that if things aren't going as well as you hoped. Right. And I would also say, I don't know about you, but I've felt like crap at mile 13, but then I felt great at mile 18. So I would say if you are starting to feel like crap at 13, it's not like – the whole race is going to crumble. You might actually end up feeling better later on. Yep. Maybe that's just me, but I've had that so many times where it's, you know, between 10 and 13 miles and I'm like maybe feeling like I'm bonking a little bit. I just take some more fuel and then I end up feeling great. So if that is how you're feeling, it might not be the end of your race. Yep. And I can give you an example, a personal one for me too. I was doing Twin Cities one year and I was about maybe five or six miles ago and I started cramping really bad. Um, and I don't normally, I'm not someone who drinks Gatorade, but I could be a good advertisement for Gatorade because I stopped and I drank like 10 glasses of it and I wow. all of a sudden felt great. And I finished that last five miles it was probably better than anything I did in the middle 10. Um, and no more cramps, whatever. And usually once wow. I get them, it would kind of be like game over, but, uh, I signed a bunch of Gatorade and just like you said, regrouped and end up having a, a you know, a decent day, not an A goal, but a, still a good race. Wow. Kudos to your stomach for handling all of that. <laughs> Which is catering. funny because now I can't even, I, I can't even fathom it, but I just slammed like 10 glasses. It's better than the time that I, and maybe I shouldn't tell this story that I did Twin Cities another time and it wasn't going well with like five miles to go. And this is pre-celiac days. There was some fraternity people out and they were offering people beer bongs. Yeah. And I decided to do that. Um, anyone out there, don't do that. <laughs> it did not or go do. well the last time. It was really fun at the time because people were cheering me on, and I was just kind of knew that the day was going to be just kind of get there. Um, not the same thing that happened when I had the Gatorade. Oh my gosh. <laughs> oh, yeah, that was in my fun. youth. Yes. Back in the youth days. <laughs> uh, well, this was such a fun conversation, and I hope informative for all of our listeners. We'll also be doing an Instagram post on this topic as well. So look for that over on our Run for PR's Instagram. And that's all for now. Happy running. The podcast you just heard was made using Anchor. Ever thought about making your own podcast? Anchor makes it really easy for anyone to get started. It's a one-stop shop for recording, hosting, and distributing podcasts. Best of all, it's 100% free. Sign up now at anchor.fm slash new. That's anchor.fm slash new to get started.